0: Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings for the following publications. Axios, the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper, the Monroe, Michigan News, Kirkus Reviews, News One, the Boston Globe newspaper, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, And I'm going to get things started off with an obituary from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The title is Martin Luther King's Sister Spent Her Life Fighting for Equality. It was written by Ernie Suggs and published June 30th, 2023. The subtitle to the story is Longtime Educator Was Last Surviving Sibling of Civil Rights Leader. Christine King Ferris was always the delicate one among the children of Martin Luther Daddy King Sr. She spent the first two weeks of her life crying, according to a painful account in her father's autobiography. Born in the upstairs bedroom of what is now known as the King Birth Home on Auburn Avenue, her doctors were baffled and her parents had no answers as to why their firstborn was suffering so much. They watched through tears as her tiny body trembled violently. Then she just stopped crying. When I didn't hear her anymore, I rushed into the house and found her wide-eyed and at ease in her body. I just stared. Like that, it was over. Just stopped, King Sr. wrote in Daddy King, in Autobiography. Now, sometimes when I recall those frightening first days of Christine's life, I feel that the illness, as severe as it was, may have strengthened her for the inordinately heavy responsibilities which we become a daily part of her adult years. Willie Christine King Ferris, the last sibling of Martin Luther King Jr. and a retired professor at Spelman College, has died. Her family announced her passing on Thursday. She was 95. Our family mourns the passing of my aunt, Willie Christine King Ferris, said Martin Luther King III. As the eldest sibling of my father, Martin Luther King Jr., Aunt Christine embodied what it meant to be a public servant. Like my dad, she spent her life fighting for equality and against racism in America. Bernice King, CEO of the King Center, said in a tweet that her aunt would always be cherished. An extraordinary educator, my father's sister, one of the collaborators with my mother in founding the King Center, Bernice King said in her tweet. Phenomenal woman inspiring, human, she survived and thrived. She was the delicate one, but she also might have been the strongest. That strength and sense of responsibility Daddy King wrote about carried the Atlanta native for close to a century as a frontline witness to some of the civil rights movement's most glorious and most painful acts. In 1968, She was in a bathroom at the Atlanta airport, about to board a plane to Memphis with her sister-in-law, Coretta Scott King, when Mayor Ivan Allen came and told them, Dr. King has died. A year later, it was her younger brother, Alfred Daniel, A.D. King, who drowned mysteriously in his own swimming pool. Finally, in 1974, in the Ebenezer Baptist Church that her family had built, Her mother, whom she had leaned on so much through the tragic deaths of her brothers, was gunned down as she played the organ at the beginning of Sunday services by a young black man who told authorities he was on a mission and hated Christianity. So many things have happened, Ferris said in a 2007 interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, marking her 80th birthday. You don't question anything, but I wonder, why am I the one that is left? God must have me here for something. Willie Christine King was born September 11, 1927, to Martin Luther King Sr. and Alberta Christine Williams King into one of Atlanta's leading black families. Her grandfather, Adam Daniel Williams, was the pastor of Ebenezer and the first president of Atlanta's NAACP chapter. Her father later assumed control of the church and emerged as one of Atlanta's most powerful black figures, fighting for equal pay for black teachers. Her mother was a choir organist, and her two brothers would at times co-pastor Ebenezer with their father. As a daughter of a prominent Atlanta family, Ferris enrolled at Spelman College. She graduated in 1948, the same year her brother, whom she referred to as M.L., graduated from Morehouse College. She would earn a master's degree from Columbia University and go on to teach at Spelman for 48 years. Retiring in 2014 as a tenured professor and director of the Learning Resources Center, she so revered and respected the college that even as a professional, she never walked on the grass, a lesson she learned as an undergraduate. Despite Ferris's family line, celebrity, and stature as a college professor, she was never one to seek a public profile. This is how she wanted it, even though she wore the same square face as her more famous brother and shared his measured Baptist drawl as a preacher. As a rising matriarch of one of the most significant black families in American history, she chose to spend her life in the background, supporting first her parents, then her two brothers, and finally her sister-in-law, Coretta Scott King, as they shined. My father and parents taught us to be humble, she said in 2007. That was part of the family way. I never felt the need to push out. But she was always there, even after all of them had gone, bearing the weight of the family name. All families have their share of tragedies, but few figures have worn a public burden as heavily as Ferris, even when she was doing it in the shadows. In 1958, it was Ferris who traveled to New York City with Coretta after her husband had been stabbed in a failed assassination attempt. A decade later, it was Ferris who flew to Memphis to claim her brother's body. In 1969, she and her father were the first ones on the scene after A.D. drowned. Still, five years later, in what she called the worst day of my life, she was sitting in Ebenezer watching and listening to her mother play the Lord's Prayer on the organ when a deranged man walked in and shot her to death. She was the first person that Dr. King's son Dexter called when his sister Yolanda died in 2007 of a heart attack. Daddy King died in 1984 at the age of 84. Coretta Scott King died in 2006 of cancer. Navigating her own story, Ferris wrote several books, including My Brother Martin, a sister remembers growing up with the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., and her memoir, which despite all of the family tragedy is filled with hope and success as she quietly built her own career while raising her family. There were some low-key public appearances. She was the vice chair and treasurer of the King Center, the Atlanta-based center devoted to the teaching of King's nonviolent philosophy, which she helped build with Coretta in 1969. For several years, wearing one of her big hats, she presided over the King Day service at Ebenezer Baptist Church to mark his birthday and national holiday. She also was active for several years in the International Reading Association, as well as the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Beside her for those years was Isaac Ferris Sr., a dashing entrepreneur she met at a wedding reception in the late 1950s. Isaac Ferris was the DJ, and a young Christine King arrived at the reception with a date, a young preacher in the mode of her brothers and father. Isaac Ferris said in 2007 that, as preachers are wont to do, Christine's date headed straight to the kitchen to get a plate of food. Isaac headed straight to Christine. Christine was very striking and she had a different presence that attracted me, he told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in 2007. It was difficult for me to take my eyes off of her. Christine and her date took Ferris home that night since he didn't have a car, but it wouldn't be the last time they saw each other. They married August 9, 1960, with King Jr. and A.D. King performing the ceremony. Isaac Newton Ferris Sr. died in 2017 at the age of 83. The couple had two children, Isaac Jr. and Angela. Ferris's only grandchild, Ferris Christine Watkins, was pudding pie to her. My father always taught us to keep the faith and keep looking up, Ferris said in 2007. Through all the tragedy, I knew that God was in charge. There must be some purpose. There are two pictures that go along with this story. One is an old black and white photograph that shows four people. There are... Two men, one woman, and one child. The caption reads, Martin Luther King Sr. on the right talks with his daughter, Christine, and her husband. The next photograph shows Dr. King's sister wearing a fur coat and a big hat standing in front of her childhood home. This is a two-story house with a big porch on the front. It is yellow and trimmed in black. That was the obituary from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper. The title is Martin Luther King's Sister Spent Her Life Fighting for Equality. It was written by Ernie Suggs and published June 30, 2023. My next reading is from the KansasCityDefender.com website. The title is Kansas City's Autumn Black wins Miss Missouri USA 2023 crown. It was written by Ryan S. and published July 3, 2023. Kansas City, Missouri's own Autumn Black has taken center stage at the newly crowned Miss Missouri USA 2023, injecting vibrancy and flair into the pageantry scene. Born and bred in Lee's Summit, Missouri, the 24-year-old is poised to utilize her new platform to uplift and inspire, a mission she's been committed to since her initial foray into pageantry. Black's involvement in the pageantry scene began in earnest in 2017 with the Miss Black and Gold Scholarship Pageant, where she claimed the title of Miss 1906. Subsequent victories followed, including her triumphs as Miss Queen of Hearts 2021 And Miss Merry Christmas 2021, leading up to her crowning achievement as Miss Missouri USA 2023. Educated at the University of Missouri, Black graduated with a Bachelor's of Journalism degree in Convergence Journalism and a minor in Business Administration, later pursuing her Master's of Science in Business at the same institution. Her academic acumen and dedication to storytelling have informed her work across numerous news publications, including E23. NBC affiliate KOMU News, The Global Journalist, Missouri Business Alert, Las Vegas Review Journal, and Cal Matters. Simultaneously, Black maintained a rigorous schedule of leadership roles through her academic journey, serving as vice president of the National Association of Black Journalists, secretary of the Delta Tau chapter of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, Incorporated, and vice president of communications for the Alumni Association Student Board. Translating her expertise in storytelling into the realm of digital communication, Black secured a coveted position as a social media manager at Oracle, one of the world's largest technology companies. She's now front and center as the host of Tech Z, a miniseries that aims to inspire early career professionals and students. Black's philanthropic endeavors match her remarkable career trajectory the Flawless Movement founder and hashtag Advocate H-E-R Advocate has been a strong voice for women's empowerment. She strives to equip students with the resources they need to become career-ready and tech-savvy, urging them to reach their full potential. With her ascension to the Miss Missouri USA throne, Autumn Black has now become a beacon for the Kansas City community that raised her. As she steps onto the national stage, Her home state watches with pride and anticipation, eagerly awaiting the impressive strides she is sure to make during her reign. That was the story Kansas City's Autumn Black wins Miss Missouri USA 2023 crown. It was written by Ryan S. and published July 3, 2023 at the KansasCityDefender.com website. My next reading is from the Community Voice newspaper and it's July 7th, 2023 edition. The title is Nicodemus' Homecoming Tradition Continues July 27th through 30th. It was written by the Voice staff. The 145th Nicodemus' Homecoming Emancipation Celebration originally held to mark the emancipation of slaves from the West Indies, has been celebrated continuously since 1878 and draws together the descendants of Nicodemus and community supporters for a celebration attracting up to a 1,000 people. Held traditionally the last weekend in July, this year's celebration is slated for July 27th through the 30th. The three-day event features a parade, the Buffalo Soldiers' Cavalry, a 5K run, children's activities, a pancake breakfast, music in the park, vintage baseball, and dances. Thursday's opening day is set aside for the annual meetings of the Nicodemus Homecoming and Nicodemus Historical Society and an early arrivals reception. Nicodemus, established in 1877, was founded shortly after the Civil War by formerly enslaved African Americans from Kentucky, Like so many other small towns which were founded in the late 1800s, Nicodemus has lost most of its population but continues to exist, which lends itself to this year's celebration theme. From perseverance to preservation, the legacy continues. Today, the town site has about 30 residents, and its status as the last remaining all-Black town west of the Mississippi River helped gain it recognition as a national park site. That was the article... Nicodemus' homecoming tradition continues July 27th through the 30th. It was written by the staff of the Community Voice newspaper and was published July 7th, 2023. My next reading is titled, VA Deny Black Veterans Health Benefits More Often Than White Vets Data Shows. It was written by Habeen Habeshian, capital H-A-B-E-S-H-I-A-N, and I found this at the Axios.com website and was published June 23, 2023. The Department of Veterans Affairs was more likely to deny disability health benefits to black veterans than their white counterparts, according to a new government data analysis. In fiscal year 2023, 84.8% of black veterans who applied for physical or mental health benefits were granted assistance, compared to 89.4% of white veterans the VA found. White veterans had a higher grant rate for every year between 2017 and 2023, according to the data the VA shared with Axios. Black veterans apply for disability benefits at higher rates than their white counterparts, 43% versus 31.7%, the VA added. We recognize that in the past there had been institutional discrimination that may have played a role in the adjudication of benefits, VA Press Secretary Terrence Hayes told Axios. The VA announced a new initiative Friday that will aim to address disparities in who receives health benefits. The agency equity team will be responsible for helping the VA improve access and care for historically underserved veterans. It will also aim to identify and eliminate disparities beyond race, including age, race, ethnicity, gender, religion, disability, or sexual identity, the VA said. Of note, The team was not created solely as a result of the data findings, Hayes said. It's been a key area of focus for Veteran Administration Secretary Dennis McDonough since he took office in 2021, per Hayes. What's next? Hayes says the new initiative is a unique opportunity to go directly to veterans of different communities and demographics to inform them of their benefits and encourage them to apply, especially for those who may have been denied in the past. But with the creation of the team, the VA hopes to figure out a way to eliminate those barriers, eliminate those concerns, so every single veteran who requests benefits gets it equally across the board, Hayes said. That was the article, VA Denied Black Veterans Health Benefits More Often Than White Vets Data Shows. It was published June 23, 2023. It was written by Serene Habeshian, and it appeared at the Axios.com website. That's A-X-I-O-S. My next reading is an interview with basketball player Chris Paul about his recently published memoir titled 61, Life Lessons from Papa on and Off the Court. This appeared at the KirkusReviews.com website. That's spelled K-I-R-K-U-S-R-E-V-I-E-W-S.com and is titled An NBA Superstar Shares Wisdom from an Elder. It was written by Eric Libertrau, capital L-I-E-B-E-T-R-A-U, and was published June 28, 2023. After the introduction, this interview is in a question-and-answer format. NBA superstar Chris Paul is a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer when his time comes with accolades galore first-team All-American at Wake Forest University, fourth overall pick in the 2005 NBA draft, 12-time All-Star and two-time Olympic gold medalist. In his debut memoir, 61, Life Lessons from Papa, on and off the court, Paul, working with longtime ESPN writer Michael Wilbon, avoids a strict rehearsal of his career, an approach that dooms many athlete memoirs. Instead, the author, now in his 18th season in the NBA, chronicles his life story via his grandfather's lessons about faith, family, and hard work. When Paul was growing up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Nathaniel Papa-Jones was one of the most beloved members of the community, until the tragic day he was murdered at the age of 61. A day later, Paul honored Papa by scoring 61 points in a high school game. Since then, he has remained dedicated and focused on the community values that Papa instilled in him. Even now, no matter what role I play on a team, one thing is constant. Hard work, writes the author. No matter if you're stronger than me, taller than me, faster than me, one thing you won't do is outwork me. Our reviewer called the book a fresh and refreshing take on the athlete memoir. I spoke with Paul via Zoom just after he finished recording the audiobook for 61. I appreciate that this is not a by-the-numbers athlete memoir. Why did you write this book now, and why did you focus on your grandfather and what he taught you? I'll be 38 in a couple of months, and I believe that timing is everything. When I was younger, I couldn't see what I was dealing with. Now I can appreciate that something so long ago still impacts the decisions I make every day. This was therapeutic for me, to talk about a lot of things that I never got an opportunity to talk about before and just show people how special those bonds are with our elders, with our grandparents. One of your grandfather's main lessons was the importance of a consistent worth ethic. Regarding basketball, that shows up especially on the defensive end. How do you maintain that diligence? What I've seen is that kids now are all just trying to see who can get the best step back, jump shot, and who can dunk. Everything is offensive driven and it's crazy. Even in the NBA, it seems like nobody trains for defense. I play that way because I think the game defensively. I talk about my college coach in the book, Skip Prosser. He came to recruit me during one of my high school games and I played well and dropped 35. After the game, I put on my warm-up suit and came out of the locker room to meet him, and he looked me in the eye and said, Are you ever going to play some defense? Coach Prosser was clearly a big influence. Tell me more about him and his approach. He had the discipline that reminded me of my grandfather and my dad. They were always hard on me and my brother because they wanted us to be great. I saw that in Coach Prosser. He wasn't somebody who was trying to kiss my ass and tell me what I wanted to hear and people need that more than they realize. Absolutely. You're right about how a coach once told you that you would always have to deal with someone who doesn't care as much as you. Yes, I was just talking about this with former Phoenix Suns teammate Kevin Durant the other day during a timeout. So many guys are really talented, but they may not love the game. I've learned over the years that you have to meet people where they are. Everybody has to set their own path. When I coach youth players, the first thing I want them to understand is that you don't sneak up on greatness. It takes hard work. Sometimes those setbacks are the things you need. I had those humbling experiences early in my career and it helped me keep my edge and I still got it. I don't care if you came from an inner city single parent home and all of that. There are definitely challenges there. But there are also challenges for the privileged kid who has the trainers and has everything given to them. Everybody faces different storms and obstacles in their life. It's about how you react when it does get tough. Everybody's story isn't the same, and it shouldn't be the same. But the one thing you can't lack is the hard work. During the pandemic, the NBA called in a self-created bubble at a Disney resort in Florida without fans or travel. While there, the players were invited to put a name or a brief message on their jerseys in support of a social justice cause in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. It was obviously a tumultuous time and a unique experience. How did you navigate that? I could write a whole different book about the bubble. I'll just tell you, we had 450 of the most recognizable faces in the world in one place. Everyone's also going to have their opinions and rightfully so. There were a lot of guys who asked to put whatever they wanted to, but realistically, you know that's not possible. In some ways, I wanted that. But as you start talking to guys, you start to realize that some of the messages weren't going to happen. A lot of guys didn't fully understand that. and There were plenty of behind-the-scenes, heated conversations, much-needed conversations. At the end, most of us were happy about the messages that were chosen, and we got through it. Is there anything else you would like to share about your book? I think one of the biggest things is that during the process of writing and editing the book, I got a newfound appreciation for authors and not just the authors, but the editors, the people who work on the audiobook and all the different intricacies that go into it. This was a lot of work that I'm proud of and excited about, but it was difficult with all the deadlines and trying to make sure everything is like you want it to be. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a novelist and write books over and over and over again, but this was a fun process. I really hope that people not only read the book, but I would love for you to listen to the audiobook, which I just finished recording. That was an interview titled, An NBA Superstar Shares Wisdom from an Elder. It was written by Eric Libertrow, and this interview was published June 28th. 2023 at the KirkusReviews.com website. And it was an interview with basketball player Chris Paul about his recently published memoir, which is titled 61 Life Lessons from Papa on and off the court. My next reading comes from the Detroit, Michigan suburb of Monroe and the Monroe News newspaper. The title is Emancipation Proclamation Juneteenth did not free all slaves. This was at the monroenews.com website and it was written by Kojo Quarty, capital K-O-J-O, capital Q-U-A-R-T-E-Y, and was published June eighteenth, 2023. In the past, I have written about Juneteenth, explaining that it was a day in 1865 when blacks who were being held as slaves after the Emancipation Proclamation were informed that they were free. The Emancipation Proclamation had been issued and signed on January 1st, 1863, but it was not until June 19th, 1865, over two years later, that the last slaves in Galveston, Texas, heard that they had been freed by proclamation a couple of years before. I use the word freed here loosely because the Emancipation Proclamation did not really free all the slaves. It declared free only the slaves living in states not under Union control. In essence, it did not immediately free a single slave. In fact, if the Union had lost the war, then it would mean nothing. According to PBS.org, the Emancipation Proclamation exempted portions of Tennessee, Virginia, and Louisiana that were occupied by the Union and left slavery untouched in the border states of Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri. Delaware and Kentucky allowed slavery until the 13th Amendment was ratified six months after Juneteenth. On June 17th, 2021, President Joe Biden designated Juneteenth as a federal holiday. There are some, mostly blacks and Native Americans, who do not celebrate the 4th of July, because while it symbolizes freedom for the United States from British rule, the U.S. Declaration of Independence leaves out blacks, Native Americans, women, and Jews. The founding fathers knew exactly what they were doing and were deliberately silent on these groups. The second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence starts, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There were many arguments and rewrites, and what came out is exactly what they intended. According to scholars at Washington University in St. Louis, the final document does not mention slavery and, through its silence, condones enslavement. But the first draft includes a condemnation of slavery. These words, removed before it was finalized, underscored the contradiction between the Founding Fathers' beliefs and actions. It is no secret that the Declaration of Independence did not consider blacks as men. This is spelled out very vividly by the Dred Scott case. In a nutshell, Dred Scott was a black enslaved man who was taken from the slave state of Missouri to the free state of Illinois. After living in Illinois as a slave for four years, he and his wife sued for their freedom on the basis that they were living in a free state, so they deserved their freedom. After 10 years of court battles, The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that as an enslaved man, he was not a citizen, but essentially another person's property. This decision precipitated the Civil War. Now, I have said that the Emancipation Proclamation did not really free the slaves, but neither were all slaves freed after Juneteenth. But Juneteenth is symbolic of the movement of a nation to free slaves. As important as Juneteenth is, It was the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that truly freed the slaves. It provides that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Freedom from slavery for blacks in America came completely with the 13th Amendment. So, as we celebrate Juneteenth, it is important to also remember December 18, 1865, when the 13th Amendment was ratified. Of course, after that came Jim Crow laws that reversed much of what had been achieved during the abolitionist movement and add to that various forms of discrimination and systemic racism that continue to place blacks and other minorities at a disadvantage. Significant progress has been made over the years in civil rights. However, there is still a long way to go. That was the column entitled Emancipation Proclamation Juneteenth Did Not Free All Slaves. It was written by Kojo Quarti and was published June 18, 2023 at the MonroeNews.com website, which is the website of the Monroe, Michigan News newspaper. My next reading is from the Boston Globe newspaper and it's July 2nd, 2, 2023 edition. The title is, the Essential Insight in Frederick Douglass' Great Independence Day Speech. It was written by Jeff Jacoby, and it was published July 2, 2023. It was on July 5, 1852, that Frederick Douglass addressed the Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society in Rochester, New York, and delivered what is often described as the greatest abolitionist speech in U.S. history. What to the American slave, Douglass demanded of his audience, is your 4th of july it was not by happenstance that douglas gave his renowned july 4th speech on the day after july 4th he had insisted on it ever since slavery had been abolished in the state of new york decades earlier black new yorkers had celebrated their emancipation on july 5th The date was chosen both as a symbol of the independence still denied to those enslaved in 15 other states in the District of Columbia and as an acid comment on the fraudulence of a nation that commemorated its liberty with parades and fireworks while permitting and enforcing the chattel slavery of Africans. So when Douglas stipulated July 5th as the date for his speech, his audience likely anticipated that he would be scathing in his denunciation of that grotesque double standard he didn't disappoint. With the wrath of an Old Testament prophet, Douglas declared that, from the slave's point of view, the 4th of July, more than any other day, underscores the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. Douglas, who had been born into slavery and escaped as a young adult, vented his moral outrage. Your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, he declared. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Douglas's speech is widely anthologized and reprinted. Students are often assigned to read it and it can be heard in numerous online recordings with Douglas's words recited by everyone from acclaimed actors to the great man's own descendants. But because the speech is very long, nearly 10,500 words, it is rarely presented in full. Instead, readers and viewers are apt to get only highlights of what Douglas said that day, primarily his scorching attacks on the duplicity that kept slavery alive. Yet as memorable and eloquent as those passages are, they are not the core of his message. Douglas excoriated America's hypocrisy, but he exulted in America's democratic promise. He placed his faith in the principle of equality and justice enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He had come to Rochester not to damn white Americans, but to implore them to live up to the founders' highest ideals. Many years later, Martin Luther King Jr., speaking to a vast throng at the Lincoln Memorial, would make a similar argument. But it was Douglas who made the argument first, and in doing so, he was rejecting the view of some of the towering abolitionists of his time, including his own mentor and hero and former ally, William Lloyd Garrison of Boston. In his lectures and his influential newspaper, The Liberator, Garrison preached that the Constitution was an evil document, a deal with the devil that protected slavery and with which there could be no compromise. At one July 4th rally, Garrison burned a copy of the Constitution, calling it a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. For years, Douglas had agreed with Garrison and regarded the American founding as having been corrupted from the start. He renounced any patriotism. He told Garrison in 1846, any patriotic sentiment was whipped out of me long since by the slave owners who had abused him in his youth. But gradually, Douglas changed his mind. He began to rethink the whole subject he would later write in his autobiography. Eventually, he concluded that Garrison and his disciples were wrong. The Constitution was not a pro-slavery document it was fundamentally anti-slavery. Even when it referred to slavery as in the notorious three-fifths clause, it did so obliquely, employing embarrassed euphemisms and speaking only of persons, never of slaves. Take the Constitution according to its plain reading, Douglas told his Rochester audience, and I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, it would be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. Interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, proclaimed Douglas, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. What was true of the Constitution was even truer of the Declaration. For all their sins, including in some cases the enslavement of fellow human beings, the signers of the Declaration were brave and wise men, Douglas said. I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration, and for the good they did and the principles they contended for, I will unite you to honor their memory. What makes Douglas's Rochester speech so remarkable is not his blistering anger at hypocrites who spoke of freedom while upholding slavery. It is his conviction that embedded in America's character documents were the principles through which slavery could be destroyed. At a time when leading anti-slavery activists regarded the American experiment as a failure and betrayal, Douglass saw in it reason for hope and optimism. He spoke on the 5th of July, but he nevertheless exalted the day to top the Declaration of Independence. The 4th of July is the first great fact in your nation's history. A very ring bolt in the chain of your yet undeveloped destiny, Douglass told his listeners. Cling to this day cling to it and to its principles with the grasp of a storm-tossed mariner to a spar at midnight. The great abolitionist rejected the counsels of despair and contempt. The American founding, he knew, was as relevant as ever, holding out the promise of greater, better days to come. It was so in 1852. It remains so today. That was the article entitled, the Essential Insight in Frederick Douglass's Great Independence Day Speech. It was written by Jeff Jacoby, published June 2, 2023, in the Boston Globe newspaper. My next reading is about the African diaspora, and it comes from the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper and its afro.com website. The title is Britain Marks Windrush Anniversary with the Story of Its Caribbean Community Still Being Written. It was published June 25, 2023, and was written by Jill Lawless. Seventy-five years ago, a ship landed at Tilbury Dock near London, carrying more than 800 passengers from the Caribbean to new lives in Britain. The arrival of the Empire Windrush on June 22, 1948, became a symbol of the post-war migration that transformed the United Kingdom and its culture. The term Windrush Generation has come to stand for hundreds of thousands of people who arrived in the U.K. between the late 1940s and early 1970s, especially those from former British colonies in the Caribbean. Windrush Day was marked on June 22nd with scores of community and official events, including a reception hosted by King Charles III. Charles commissioned portraits of 10 Windrush passengers for the Royal Collection as a reflection of the immeasurable difference that they, their children, and their grandchildren have made to this country. There also was a National Church service, a Windrush flag flying over Parliament, and a set of commemorative stamps from the Royal Mail. Patrick Vernon, convener of the Windrush 75 network that is marking the anniversary, said the day's events were a chance to acknowledge the legacy of those first Windrush pioneers, the challenges they overcame, and the contribution they made to Britain. Behind the anniversary celebrations lies a complex story that is still unfolding. Who was aboard the ship? The Empire Windrush carried mostly black people from Jamaica, Trinidad, and other Caribbean islands who were invited by the British government to help rebuild the war-shattered nation. Many had fought against the Nazis in World War II. They came to work as nurses, railway workers, and in other key jobs. Many settled in working-class neighborhoods, including the Brixton and Notting Hill areas of London. The new arrivals were welcomed by some, but faced widespread discrimination in employment and housing. In 1958, racially motivated attacks on black residents in Notting Hill sparked days of rioting. The Notting Hill Carnival now one of Europe's biggest street parties, was founded soon after to celebrate Caribbean culture and to bring communities together. A decade later, conservative politician Enoch Powell made an infamous speech predicting rivers of blood as a result of mass immigration. The speech helped spark a surge of protest and resistance by Britons of color. How did the Windrush generation fare in Britain? Members of the Windrush generation and their descendants from the Caribbean and other parts of the former British Empire have had a colossal impact on British culture. People like poet Linton Kwesi Johnson, DJ Don Letts, and members of ska bands like The Specials infused Caribbean musical influences in urban youth rebellion in the 1970s and 80s. Their influence helped see new styles of music, including grime, a distinctly London form of rap. In other art forms, major figures include Turner Prize-winning artist Chris Ofili, 12 Years a Slave filmmaker Steve McQueen, and writers Andrea Levy, Bernadine Evaristo, and Nobel Literature laureate Abdul Razak Gurnah, capital A-B-D-U-L-R-A-Z-A-K, capital G-H-U-R-N-A-H. Prince William, the heir to the British throne, said June 22nd that the contributions of the Windrush generation cannot be overstated. We are a better people today because the children and the grandchildren of those who came in 1948 have stayed and become part of who we are in 2023, he said. What's the Windrush scandal? Commonwealth immigrants who came to Britain before 1973 had an automatic right to settle in the UK. But decades later, thousands fell victim to the conservative government's aim of making Britain a hostile environment for illegal immigration. In 2018, British news outlets revealed that people who had lived legally in Britain for decades had been denied housing, jobs, or medical treatment because they could not prove their status. Many documents, including passenger cars from the Empire Windrush, had been destroyed by the authorities. Dozens were detained or deported to countries they had not visited for decades. After an outcry, the British government apologized to the Windrush generation, set up a commission to investigate what went wrong, and established a compensation program. What does Windrush mean today? Windrush today has multiple meanings. Onyakachi Wambu, capital O-N-Y-E-K-A-C-H-I, capital W-A-M-B-U, editor of Empire Windrush, An anthology of black British writing said it wasn't until several decades after 1948 that the word windrush began to mean something bigger than the people who came on the ship. We began to talk about windrush and it became kind of institutionalized, he said at a recent panel discussion. There is now also an element of it that means scandal and betrayal. Many people caught up in the Windrush scandal say they are struggling to get compensation from a bureaucratic and inefficient government program. The government has declined to act on several of the recommendations of an independent review. That was the story, Britain Mark's Windrush anniversary with the story of its Caribbean community still being written. It was published June 25, 2023 at the Baltimore Afro-Americans Afro.com website, and it was written by Jill Lawless. My next reading is from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette newspaper. The title is King Apologizes for Dutch Slavery Role. It was written by Ahmad Seir, capital S-E-I-R, and Mike Corder, and was published July 2, 2023. Dutch King Willem Alexander apologized Saturday, July 1st, for his country's role in slavery and asked for forgiveness in a historic speech greeted by cheers and whoops at an event to commemorate the anniversary of the abolition of slavery. The King's speech followed Dutch Prime Minister Mark Root's apology late last year for the country's role in the slave trade and slavery. It is part of a wider reckoning with colonial histories in the West that has been spurred in recent years by the Black Lives Matter movement. In an emotional speech, Willem Alexander referred back to that apology as he told a crowd of invited guests and onlookers, Today I stand before you. Today, as your king and as a member of the government, I make this apology myself, and I feel the weight of the words in my heart and soul. The king said he has commissioned a study into the exact role of the Royal House of Orange-Nassau in slavery in the Netherlands. But today, on this day of remembrance, I ask forgiveness for the clear failure to act in the face of this crime against humanity, he added. Some people want action to back up the words. I feel good, but I am still looking forward to something more than just apologies, said Doja Rafos, age 28 capital D-O-E-L-J-A, capital R-E-F-O-S. I don't feel like we're done. We're definitely not there yet, Riefos added. Slavery was abolished June 1, 1863 in Suriname and the Dutch colonies in the Caribbean, but most of the enslaved laborers were forced to continue working on plantations for a further 10 years. Saturday's commemoration and speech marked the start of a year of events to mark the 150th anniversary of July 1, 1873. Research published last month showed that the king's ancestors earned the modern-day equivalent of $595 million from slavery, including profits from shares that were effectively given to them as gifts. When Root apologized in December, he stopped short of offering compensation to descendants of enslaved people. Instead, the government is establishing a $217 million fund for initiatives that tackle the legacy of slavery in the Netherlands and its former colonies and to improve education about the issue. That isn't enough for some in the Netherlands. Two groups, Black Manifesto and the Black Archives, organized a protest march before the King's speech Saturday under the banner No Healing Without Reparations. A lot of people, including myself, my group, the Black Archives and the Black Manifesto, say that an apology is not enough. An apology should be tied to a form of repair and reparatory justice or reparation, said Black Archives director Mitchell Isajas, capital E-S-A-J-A-S. The Netherlands' often brutal colonial history has come under renewed and critical scrutiny in the aftermath of the 2020 killing of George Floyd a Black man in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the Black Lives Matter movement. A groundbreaking 2021 exhibition at the National Museum of Art and History took an unflinching look at slavery in Dutch colonies. In the same year, a report described the Dutch involvement in slavery as a crime against humanity and linked it to what the report described as ongoing institutional racism in the Netherlands. The Dutch first became involved in the transatlantic slave trade in the late 1500s and became a major trader in the mid-1600s. Eventually, the Dutch West India Company became the largest transatlantic slave trader. There's one photograph that accompanies this story. It has three people in it. On the right is King Willem-Alexander of the Netherlands. Beside him are two indigenous women from Suriname carrying a huge wreath of flowers. The caption reads, Dutch King Willem Alexander lays a wreath at the slavery monument after apologizing for the royal house's role in slavery and asks forgiveness in a speech greeted by cheers and whoops at an event to commemorate the anniversary of the country abolishing slavery in Amsterdam, Netherlands. That was the article. King apologizes for Dutch slavery role. It was written by Ahmad Seer and Mike Quarter. It was published in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette on July 2nd, 2023. My next reading is a short story from the News1.com website. It's titled The Brothers of Pine Oak, The Mysterious Disappearance of a Slave Family Searching for Freedom. It was written by Bilal G. Morris and published June 12, 2023 at the NewsOne.com website. It's subtitled The best tales come in the form of black folklore passed down through generation whispers. History books are filled with interesting black stories from the past, but the best tales come in the form of black folklore passed down through generation whispers. Often these stories can be very difficult to find. They aren't taught to us in schools and many of them can't be traced in reports or newspaper clippings. This is when we turn to our storytellers, the authors who embody a part of our culture that has been hidden by history's victors. One of those authors who dedicated their life to telling the lost stories of black Americans is Patricia McKissick. Since I began writing black folklore in 2020, I have been introduced to a side of black history that I never knew existed. Extraordinary supernatural tales of ghosts and spirits intertwine with real life events from black history. As amazing as these tales have been thus far, there's nothing compared to the world that was introduced to me after reading Patricia McKissick's book, Dark Thirty, Southern Tales of the Supernatural. Her 1992 children's novel, which won a Newberry Honor and Coretta Scott King Award in 1993, tells the tales of supernatural activity occurring throughout times of slavery and civil rights in the antebellum South. One of the most mesmerizing stories from McKissick's Tales is the story of the Pine Oak Brothers, Henry and Harper. The story begins with a Tennessee slave owner named Amos McAvoy. Amos was the master of a plantation called Pine Oak, which was built in 1801, the same year Thomas Jefferson became president. Amos inherited the plantation from his father and had aspirations to pass it down to his son. He would eventually meet his love, Alva Dean, marrying her and uniting two prominent slave-owning families for better profits. Unfortunately, tragedy would strike the McAvoy family as Alva died while giving birth to Amos's firstborn, Harper. Her death traumatized Amos so much that he abandoned his newborn son Harper in the Pine Oak Plantation, fleeing to New Orleans. For the next 10 years, Amos would only come back to Pine Oak for a few weeks out of the year during the harvest season, leaving Harper with his grandmother. Harper yearned for his father's love, but rarely got it. Then one day, everything changed. Amos came back to Tennessee wanting to reconcile with his son, so he moved Harper back to Pine Oak in hopes to better the relationship. Amos then headed back to New Orleans to finish some business before permanently moving back to Pine Oak. When he returned, he wasn't alone. Accompanying Amos was a mulatto child about two years younger than Harper. The boy's name was Henry, and Harper immediately noticed how much he resembled his father. When rumors started to swirl that Amos was Henry's father, Amos never denied it. He would eventually admit to Harper's grandmother that he was the boy's father, telling her that the child's mother was dead and that he didn't want another slave owner to mistreat him. Against everyone's wishes, Amos brought Henry to Pine Oak, putting him in charge of the stables. This infuriated Harper, who grew more and more jealous of Henry and his relationship with his father, even though Henry was a slave. Harper's jealousy for Henry would completely consume him as his hate for his brother was the only thing he could think about. Henry was a hard worker and never complained about his bondage. He was eventually put in charge of pine oak operations and was allowed to marry the love of his life, Charlemagne, another slave that lived on the plantation. Amos also broke the news to Henry that he wasn't actually a slave, but a free man. Henry's mother was freed by her mother after she was born, which meant Henry by law wasn't a slave. Amos apologized for keeping this from him, telling Henry he didn't want him running away before he could take care of himself. Surprisingly, Henry already knew he was free. His mother would often remind him of his freedom before she died. Henry promised Amos he would stay on to run Pine Oak as long as he could be paid for his services. His goal was to buy his wife's freedom and then leave Pine Oak to start a new life. A few years later, Amos fell very ill. On his deathbed, he called out to his son and Harper, who was set to inherit the entire estate, came to his father's aid. Amos's last words to Harper were, Henry, tell him. Amos died before finishing his sentence. This made Harper very angry and he dismissed his father's last words. When Henry asked Harper if their father had mentioned anything about freeing his wife Charlemagne, Harper said no, lying to Henry, telling him their father suggested he sell his brother. He also threatened to keep Harper's wife and new child out of spite. But Henry never wavered or lost his composure. Instead, he brought to Harper's attention that Pine Oak was failing, and now that their father was gone, they'd have to work together to keep the place afloat. But Harper ignored him and continued to live a lavish life, spending the plantation money on liquor and bad business decisions. When the bank came to collect, the first thing Harper sold was Henry, not knowing that he actually wasn't an asset to sell. Henry approached Harper explaining to him that he wasn't a slave and that he couldn't be sold. Confused, Harper questioned the validity of Henry's claim, stating that his father never told him that. But Henry had the paperwork and showed it to his half-brother. But Harper had already made the sale and the slavers were coming tomorrow to pick up their buck. When the slavers arrived at Pine Oak, Harper tried to explain that Henry was a free man and tried to entice the men to purchase Henry's family instead, but the men only wanted Henry. When Harper went to fetch Henry, he was furious to learn that Henry and his family had escaped during the night. The slavers, accompanied by Henry and their slave-catching hounds, began their search for the runaway slave family. The dogs chased the slave family along the Tops River, swiftly erasing the family's head start they had gained the night before. As Henry and his family approached a crashing waterfall, they quickly realized they had run out of places to escape. Desperately. Trying to keep the dogs off their tail in a last-ditch effort, the family climbed a steep cliff that hung over the waterfall. They had no place to run. Harper demanded that Henry and Charlemagne surrender, following the family to the edge of the cliff, but their destiny had different plans. Charlemagne handed the baby to Henry, then leaped into the raging waterfall. Henry then clutched his baby and dove into the waterfall behind Charlemagne. Shocked at what he just witnessed, Harper climbed to the spot that Henry just jumped from and gazed into the water searching for signs of life. All of a sudden, three beautiful birds, a mother, a father, and a child bird swoop from under the waterfall right past Harper and fly north. Frustrated at losing his brother, Harper curses the birds, yelling at them to come back until he loses his balance and falls into the raging waterfall. A few days later, Harper's body was found downstream. Henry, Charlemagne, and their young baby boy were never found or heard from again. McKissick's tale of the Pine Oak brothers and the mysterious disappearance of Henry and his family is just one of ten amazing tales told in Dark Thirty, Southern Tales of the Supernatural. That was the story, The Brothers of Pine Oak, the mysterious disappearance of a slave family searching for freedom. It was written by Bilal G. Morris, published June 12th, 2023, and it appeared at the newsone.com website. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.